We return this afternoon to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. And I'm sure that you are familiar with the words and the context here, but we want to read together and consider verses 4 and 5. We're breaking into the middle of a sentence here at the beginning of verse 4, describing civil authorities or rulers or powers. It says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. We need his blessing as we work through Romans 13. We We need it more now than we did a few years ago. It seems like we have, again, just to refresh our minds here, we have the basic duty at the beginning of verse 1 to be subject unto the higher powers. We see that repeated here in verse 5. You must needs be subject. Every believer must submit to civil government. Then we have these uh, reasons why, and we have listed seven here following John MacArthur's handy outline. First, civil government is ordained of God. It is God's institution. We have that at the end of verse 1. Then at the beginning of verse 2, resistance to civil government is rebellion against God himself. Thirdly, those who resist civil government will be punished at the end of verse 2, the last part of verse 2. Fourthly, civil government serves to restrain evil as well as to promote good. And we numbered those as separate items. It serves to restrain evil, verse 3, the first sentence. And then it serves... Uh, I'm sorry, it serves to restrain evil, and then it serves to promote good uh, from the remainder of verse 3 and through the first sentence of verse 4. Now, we want to consider this afternoon the remaining two reasons that are given. In the sixth place, civil government is empowered by God to punish the disobedient. And that is uh, the second sentence in verse 4 to the end of that verse. And then in the seventh and final place, we must submit to civil government to keep a good conscience. And that, of course, is verse 5. So, 
In a way, neither of these final two uh, reasons or arguments are altogether new. Uh, this point made at the end of verse 4 is almost a restatement of uh, the end of verse 2 where verse 2 says, They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or, or judgment or condemnation. Here it is perhaps uh, enlarged upon in some measure. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. This is, again, something of a follow-up to the opening words of verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And we pointed out how that the word terror there in verse 3 is simply the noun form of the verb uh, be afraid that is here in verse 4. So, the just perhaps something of a summary here is this uh, under this this point being made in in the majority of verse 4 those who do evil ought to be afraid they ought to be afraid of civil government civil authorities the motivation of fear is what is in view here and what is underscored here. If you do evil, then you ought to be afraid. You ought to have terror. Because there are repercussions for doing what is evil or what is wrong. And the repercussions are from civil government, at the hand of civil government. And, and that hand of civil government is not an empty hand. It carries a sword. <clears throat> and Paul explains here, he doesn't carry a sword in vain. It, it, it isn't just um, a decoration. That sword is there to be used. And he does use it. Civil authorities use that power to punish evildoers, and they should. Now, in the Roman world, we understand that sometimes uh, government officials, dignitaries, and such would carry a small dagger uh, attached on their side, perhaps, and they never intended to use that. It was just an emblem. It, uh, it was a decoration. But it did represent something. It was an emblem of their power. They had officers and officials who served under them who carried a bigger sword. And that's the one Paul's talking about here. And those officers certainly didn't carry their sword for no good reason. The, uh, th there were various blades uh, used. Uh, and if I understand the, one that, the term that's used here, 
it's not a small dagger, nor is it the big, long uh, battle sword. It's one that was of a convenient length that would be used to slaughter animals and to take the head off of uh, a murderer. It was the, a decapitating instrument. It's that size sword and a sword for that purpose. And Paul says, the civil government has this sword, it carries this sword, and puts it to use. A.T. Robertson quotes uh, another writer, Mr. Vincent, saying that the Emperor Trajan presented to a provincial governor on starting out for his province a dagger. Now, of course, this was, this was an ornamental knife. So get the picture. Here's, this, uh, here's the emperor, Trajan, and he's, he has a governor that he's sending to a province to rule that province. And as he sets out on his journey, the, the emperor presents him with this, with this blade that is inscribed with these words. <clears throat> For me, if I deserve it, in me. In other words, this is you know for me to use <laughs> symbolically as uh, you know the authority of the emperor behind me. But if I if I'm the criminal, if I misbehave, then stick it in me. Paul uses twice here in this verse the phrase minister of God. And it's, it's the, the term servant, a, 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 what we might think of as a high servant, the deacon term here in the original language. And the phrase minister of God shows us that as believers we are to see a dimension in civil government that unbelievers do not see. They see in civil government just someone who is more powerful and has a, has a bigger knife or a, you know, a bigger gun or whatever. When believers look at civil government, we see God's purpose, God's institution, God's Messenger, God's minister, God's servant, doing God's will, administering God's wrath and vengeance. And I would underscore that here in verse 4 in our minds. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Whose wrath? Well, ultimately, it's God's wrath. Whose revenge? Ultimately, it's God's revenge. And the civil government, civil officials, are simply God's hands in this matter. We know from chapter 12 that vengeance is ultimately God's prerogative and God's territory. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 19 <clears throat> we know 
again from chapter 12, verse 17, that there is no place for personal revenge. Recompense to no man evil for evil. But God has ordained civil rulers to administer earthly revenge or God's revenge in an earthly uh, capacity upon those who do evil. God has invested civil government with the power to punish evildoers even up to and including the death penalty. And many times in Scripture, the sword is spoken of as sort of a, a synonym or almost a euphemism uh, for death. When Paul says then that he beareth not the sword in vain, here is certainly a one of the passages in Scripture that enforces or reinforces the death penalty for certain evil deeds. We see it beginning in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where the murderer is to be put to death. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, man was made. If someone kills an animal, he may get in trouble. <laughs> he may have to buy a new animal. He, he may have to uh, take one out of his own flock and give it to the owner of the animal. But he's not put to death for killing an animal. But the animal is not made in the image of God. It's man made in the image of God. Human life is sacred. And so, though it's not dealt with here in any detail, there is certainly an argument here in favor of the death penalty for what we would call capital crimes. We may debate what exactly constitutes a capital crime, but there's no debate about the place for capital punishment. Think also in the New Testament in Acts chapter 25 where Paul is on trial and he says this, if I've done anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. That again is, is a, uh, a kind of proof text for the, the subject of capital punishment. Well, the point here is civil government is empowered by God to punish the disobedient. And it is the motivation of fear that keeps many people from outward evil. And though that is not the highest motivation, it is a powerful working motivation. What keeps people generally speaking, from doing all the evil that they entertain in their minds. It's that they know they would have to pay a price for it. They wouldn't get away with it. They would be caught. They would be punished. And the fact that they see others who are punished when they do those kinds of things, 
that serves as a deterrent to others to keep from doing the same. And the, the principle of the punishing of evildoers as a deterrent to crime is thoroughly biblical. We see at least uh, four times in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, how that in the punishment of evil doing, and in, in some cases it's uh, idolatry, in some cases it's uh, cursing your parents and, and such like, but in each of these cases where a death penalty is to be carried out in Old Testament Israel, God says, and others will hear and fear. And that hearing and fearing, that's the deterrent to keep them from doing the same thing. It's the fear that is included here in, in Romans 13.4. And so even wicked rulers preserve some order in society when they punish evildoers. They may need to be punished. You know, the civil authorities may need to be punished themselves sometimes, and they don't. Uh, or they're, they're not punished. But inasmuch as they sometimes punish evildoers in their realm, they preserve some order and do some good. Now, before we get too far away from the subject of capital punishment, let me just say this. When capital crimes are not punished with capital punishment, what happens? The fear factor is removed. And people aren't afraid to be lawless and to take a life or something along, you know, something that would rise to that level of crime and evil. <clears throat> and oftentimes in our modern world, as, as ridiculous as this is to say, it's true. The ones who are opponents of capital punishment are religious people. And their argument is usually something like this. Well, you know, that, that murderer, his life is sacred, and his life is made in the image of God also. And so they, they, they turn that in an argument, they think, into their own favor, that the sanctity of life means that there should never be capital punishment. But the truth is, the argument of the sanctity of life argues for capital punishment, as I said a moment ago, if an so-called innocent life, not innocent in an absolute sense, of course, none of us is, but in, in a relative sense, if an innocent life created in the image of God is taken and the person who commits the, the crime of murder is not executed, then we have just removed the principle of sanctity of life under the disguise of, of pretending to preserve it. 
The truth is life belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. Our own life doesn't belong to us. Certainly no one else's life belongs to us. We don't have the right to take someone else's life. And if someone else does take a person's life, then God's clearly revealed will, Old Testament and New Testament, is that they must give up their life. That's preserving the sanctity of life. Let me say also a word here while we're in this verse about so-called just war. There is, I think, a very clear argument in Scripture about the legitimacy of just war. And without doing a whole study on that, just the mention here of the civil authorities carrying a sword, we ought to at least say this, The sword is in the hand of civil government for national self-defense which is simply an extension of personal self-defense on a larger scale. Remember when Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate, he said this, If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? And we may conclude from that statement that there is a time, as far as earthly kingdoms are concerned, for a fight. God help us. May God help our civil authorities to be careful and wise and selective and and so on but there is such a thing as a legitimate war the soldiers came to john the baptist he didn't tell him you should never be a soldier he said be a an honest soldier be a good soldier don't take advantage of unarmed people and so on but we should see the difference between what Jesus says to Pilate there about that if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would fight, and what he says, or what he said just before that, a few hours before that, to Peter in the garden, when Peter takes out a knife or a sword and takes off an ear of one of those officers that came to arrest Jesus. And on that occasion and in that context, Jesus said to Peter, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. What's the difference? Jesus is telling Peter, as an individual, don't raise uh, a rebellion against civil authority. Put your sword away, Peter. If you keep wielding the sword, you're going to die with the sword. Whose sword? The sword of civil government. Peter, if you take up arms against civil government, you may expect to die at the hands of that civil government. 
And that's the way it usually turns out. Peter, expect to lose that fight. Don't expect God to bless that effort. And so in our Lord's case, even though civil government was acting unjustly against Jesus, Jesus himself says to Peter, don't oppose it with force. Even when civil government operates unjustly and tyrannically, I don't see any clear New Testament teaching allowing us to engage in violence against it. And as I said at the beginning of these studies in this chapter, this text gives us the rule. It doesn't give us any exceptions to the rule. And I have said that hopefully before we finish, we'll devote one study to what we might think of as exceptions biblically, but there are none mentioned here. And that says something in itself. So there's the motivation of fear. Be subject to civil government because if you don't, their sword will come down upon you. And you may lose your head. But last of all, there is a higher motivation than this. There's a higher motivation than the fear of the sword. And it is in verse 5, Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And this especially is a uniquely Christian perspective on the matter. We see God involved in this. This has already been emphasized uh, in some measure in verses 1 and 2 where he says the powers that be are ordained of God and to resist those powers is to resist God and so on. And he's saying it again this way here in verse 5, conscience sake, for the sake of your conscience. Conscience is a knowledge of right and wrong that God has put within us. And yes, all men have a conscience to some degree. And a Christian has an especially tender conscience because it has been renewed by the saving grace of God. Old writers used to say conscience is God's deputy in the soul. It's the deputy that God has has put on, uh, has given the station of our own heart in which to work and hold office. What's called conscience sake here is called the Lord's sake in a parallel passage of 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Well, it's because the Lord tells us in our conscience that this is what we should do. If we do wrong, 
we know that God is not pleased and that God will chasten us. Even if civil authorities never become involved and they never know anything about the matter, we know that God knows. That's conscience at work. It's for the Lord's sake that we do what is right. David's conscience was at work when he was in the cave hiding for his life from King Saul. And who comes into the cave thinking it was an empty cave but Saul? takes off his robe and goes about using the bathroom. David goes over to his robe and cuts off a part of it. And his conscience was smitten over that. It came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Wow, there is a sensitive conscience. It wasn't just out of fear of repercussions from Saul that David repented of what he had done. It was because of his conscience toward God. Paul in the New Testament speaks of his conscience toward God. He says, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. We must keep a clear conscience before God in all matters, including obedience to civil government. Let me say it this way. We should obey civil government not just because we have to, but because we should. Because it's the right thing. Because it's right in God's sight. And in a way, that's what this whole passage or these these opening verses of Romans 13 is all about. We see a spiritual dimension to this aspect of our life. And we want to keep a good conscience toward God. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Willing to live honestly. Not being forced to against our will, but willing to. And perhaps in a more a more direct parallel is in Titus chapter three verse one. You're familiar with this. We've used this some already here. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. There's the conscience being ready, being prepared, being prompt. To every good thing, every good work. And so this is the highest motivation. We see obedience to civil government as obedience to God. And to keep a clear conscience with God, we must obey the authorities that he's put in place. 
Let me just say these words in way of application here. Now, we should never violate our conscience before God. We should make sure that our conscience is, is informed by the Word of God. It's possible to bind your conscience by something other than Holy Scripture, and that always is counterproductive in the end. We paint ourselves into some kind of a corner when we do that. But if our conscience is bound by the Word of God as it ought to be, God will be honored by our obedience to him and our maintaining a clear conscience never violate your conscience keep it clear at all cost and let us endeavor to keep the heavenly perspective on all things earthly that again may be something of a summary of these first 5 verses Keep a a heavenly perspective on earthly circumstances and especially difficult circumstances like those that we find ourselves in presently with so much evil in civil government and civil government promoting perversion and punishing what is right. It's a very great grief, and as I said last week, it's it's quite a dilemma that we find ourselves in. But we must bring the broadest perspective to bear on these circumstances. And we must leave vengeance to God. I quoted a moment ago this very parallel passage, but let me turn and read from it at some length here again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, the king, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Well, that's how government ought to operate and normally operates. And even when there's much evil in the government, it normally tends to operate to the punishment of evildoing and the praise of them that do well. He goes on to say, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God honor all men love the brotherhood fear God honor the king servants be subject to your masters it's interesting that he goes from submission to civil government on the part of citizens uh, and Christian citizens in particular to the matter of servants, which obviously he's talking here about Christian servants being submissive to their masters. The same principles apply. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but this principle applies. It applies to servants with their masters. It applies to citizens with their rulers. The command is be subject to them whether they're good or bad. He goes on to say, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Notice he mentions the conscience here. He says, If a man for conscience toward God endure grief and suffers unjustly, that's commendable. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it and ye take it patiently, this is acceptable or thankworthy with God. Peter, in this passage, like Paul in Romans 13, keeps pointing us to the divine perspective on these things. God help us to think biblically and to keep a long-term perspective. Now let me mention here a couple of uh, questions. Questions that perhaps we have considered or have heard others bring up. What if we suffer for doing what is right? What if it is not evildoers who suffer, but those who do right who suffer? What if there's a miscarriage of justice by civil government and we in particular as believers in Christ become the the specific targeted objects of persecution? Well, I would only answer this. If that comes to pass, you can suffer with a clear conscience. And that's what Peter emphasizes there. Other passages of Scripture indicate to us that we should expect to suffer. But God help us to suffer with a clear conscience. Not because we complicated things or we went picking a fight or we picked up a sword against civil government and gave them some legitimacy in their own minds against us. Think about this, beloved. Paul talks here about the sword in the hand of, of God's minister of civil government. That sword came down upon Paul's own neck, didn't it? And it was an unjust execution. Do you think Paul had some reservations there as he's you know, waiting uh, the executioner to come to the prison and take off his head? Do you think that he would like to take back some of the words that he said here in Romans 13? How could he? Being that these words are inspired by God. 
No doubt when Paul got on his knees and laid his head on a big chopping block, he did so with a clear conscience. And that's all that matters. What if? What if we lose our freedom at the hands of tyrants? So the first scenario is, you know, what if there's persecution against Christians as Christians? What if there's a broader persecution just against citizens as citizens? And both believers and unbelievers lose freedoms at the hand of tyrants. And we end up losing our our whole nation as we know it altogether. And we become, God forbid, a colony of China or something. What then? My answer is this. God will give us the grace that we need when we need it to face whatever his providence holds. We have to trust the Lord. And we know that as we keep this the broadest perspective on all of these things that that we can, thinking biblically. We understand that God in his own way and time will render his justice to those who are unjust, to those who oppress, and, and those who are tyrannical. He punishes wicked People with wicked people. And we may feel like we're, you know, little peons caught in the, in the crossfire. But God's in control of that. We have to trust Him. We are repeatedly forced to trust God. And, you know, there's, you can exhaust yourself silly thinking of all of the what-ifs. Well, the evil of tomorrow will be there tomorrow. Don't bring the evil of tomorrow into today. That's what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. But know this. God will even the score. God will render perfect justice in his own way and in his own time. Certainly on judgment day, but even before then, it's amazing uh, to read a passage like uh, Isaiah chapter 10. And I'm going to close with that <clears throat> to see what God says. This is just one of several passages we could look at, but this is one of the most clear. Here is Judah, rebellious, idolatrous, wicked. So God sends punishment, and some of that is from the Assyrians. 
Well, the Assyrians are a wicked people. They're unjust. They're idolaters. But God says, I'll take care of the Assyrians too. That's what I mean when I say he punishes wicked people by other wicked people. And, it, and the cycle goes on and on until the final judgment day. Just listen to this. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. God says, I'm punishing Israel for their sins through the Assyrians. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. That's Israel. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and tread them down like the mire of the streets. Assyria is going to come in and just wreak havoc in Israel. The Assyrians don't even realize that they're being used by God as a a means to punish Israel for her sins. That's what verse 7 of Isaiah 10 says says, Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Why, to the Assyrians, Israel is just one of a whole series of nations that they're conquering. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? And so on. God says, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them, of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high look. Yes, Jerusalem was going to suffer. It was going to be painful and ugly and deadly. The Assyrians were going to have the upper hand. But God says, I'll take care of the Assyrians when the time comes. I will destroy and punish them later on in the chapter. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, my people that dwellest in Zion... Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt, and so on. Well, you get the picture here. God says, I'm going to punish Israel for her wickedness, then I'll punish Assyria for hers also, and punish Babylon for hers after that, and on and on it goes. This is what I mean by saying we have to keep this, this broad perspective on things. And in our own lifetime, we are forced to trust God and to seek him for wisdom and discretion. We have no other recourse. What else can we do? We trust 
our soul to him for eternal salvation? Can we not trust our earthly existence to him also? (laughs) And whatever he has for us, it will be best. So we're in good hands. You know, insurance companies come and go. (laughs) But in God, you're really in good hands. The promise there in Deuteronomy is the eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And as my mother says, that means you never hit rock bottom with God. You may get very low, but you never hit rock bottom because his arms are always underneath. And so we trust him in the times in which we live and whatever tomorrow may bring. 